This morning we conclude a series from the book of Acts that we've been in this fall. Nearly 75% of the Bible comes to us in narrative form, and the book of Acts is one of these narrative genres that comes before us. And so we've been looking each week throughout the fall at these different stories that manifest the beauty and the glory of the gospel, that manifest the advancement of God's kingdom, and that it manifests God's work in the world. And so we've been looking at individual stories with Peter and with Paul and with other disciples and other preachers and even beginning with Jesus himself at the beginning of Acts and his resurrected body. But it's important for us to know that all these individual stories, let's call them micro-narratives, really fit within what we want to call a macro or meta-narrative that begins in Genesis, that goes to Revelation and continues to unfold even to this day. We all are a part of a story. The Bible is telling a story. In fact, in many ways, the Bible is one story. Those of you who are parents that have young kids and maybe have been privileged enough to avail yourself to the Jesus Storybook Bible get an amazing picture of this. Even though that book by Sally Lloyd-Jones is written for children, if you're a parent and you've read it, you quickly realize it's not really only written for children, because it weaves an amazing tapestry through the fabric of the gospel narrative throughout Scripture of which we get to be a part. Well, the book of Acts is a part of this larger meta-narrative. You see, the narrative follows these scenes. God created all things to be good, then the fall enters the world, And then God works to start to redeem that which was fallen, and that redemption one day will cultivate in consummation. And so we can categorize this like this, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. This is what makes a good story. In fact, you could even take this grid to almost any good story. And I'm talking about stories outside of Scripture, Stories that are clearly not explicitly religious or spiritual, potentially even written by non-Christians themselves. These are essentially the components of almost, if not every, good story. Creation, fall, redemption, and then consummation, the day when all things will be made right. Well, Acts falls within that larger story. And today in Acts 17, part 2, We opened it last week for part one. Today we come in part two from Acts 17. Paul is unfolding in very brief, in a very brief way, this same story, this gospel narrative. Paul is weaving the story into this framework of creation, fall, redemption, consummation. And he's speaking to people that do not believe. But he's speaking to people that believe some story, Because everybody believes a story. Everybody has some ultimate convictions that form a story that you build your life upon. Everybody has to answer at least these three questions ultimately. How are things supposed to be? What is the main problem with the way things are? What is the solution and how can it be realized? Everybody answers these. Everybody. Every ideological system, every political system, every religious system is seeking to answer in one way or another how are things supposed to be, what is the main problem with the way things are, and what is the solution, 
and how can it be realized? Paul, today, in Acts 17, in a very skilled and succinct way, answers these ultimate questions. Let's stand as we hear the reading of God's Word. Acts 17, beginning in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth, and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. One of my closest friends in the world, who became my best friend during graduate school, recounts his conversion to Christianity when he was a college student. He was a freshman, and he had gotten to know his roommate fairly well uh, within the first half of the first semester of their freshman year, and they would have different conversations, you know, college is this birthplace of ideas, it's a new time developmentally in life, and so you tend to pontificate on ultimate questions at times, you know, late at night in a freshman dormitory, etc., and one evening... Uh, after they had had many other conversations uh, throughout the first half of the semester, one evening they are in their bunks, you know, one uh, with each other, you know, one on top, one on the bottom bunk, and they're laying there, and they're having this conversation, and at one point it goes silent, and then my friend, who was not a Christian, hears from his roommate, who was a Christian, Jeremy. I really feel sorry for you. And Jeremy said, what are you talking about? And he's like, I just don't know how you can sleep at night. And Jeremy said, what do you mean? And he said, I just don't think I could go to sleep not knowing if I woke up in the morning where I would spend eternity. And that was it. And then 
they like fell asleep. And my friend, Jeremy, the next morning, wakes up right away and immediately drives to the church where he knew his roommate went and knocked on the senior pastor's door. The senior pastor, of course, welcomed him in, and he said, hey, Carl said this. Is this true? And then the pastor goes on to outline for him in detail the gospel, and my friend comes to know Christ in that moment. Now, I would never advocate for that system or style of outreach or evangelism or sharing the gospel. What I do appreciate about that in an 18-year-old way, uh, Jeremy's roommate Carl had a real passion for Christ and had a real burden for his roommate Jeremy. Well, I think we see the same thing today in Acts chapter 17. Paul, the apostle, has a real passion for the gospel and for Christ, and he has a real burden for the men and the women of Athens who are worshiping idols, and as a result of their idol worship, according to the truth of the Scriptures, are going to be outside the boundary of Christianity, are going to be outside the boundary of the new heavens and the new earth uh, for an eternity, and as a result of this burden, Paul moves towards them. Paul moves towards them in a loving way. Paul moves towards them in a courageous way. Paul moves towards them through seeking to engage them. That's really what we talked about in depth last week. How Christians, the church, is not called to be Christ against culture or Christ simply with culture, but the church, as God's people, is called to engage our culture, particularly our unbelieving world around us. And Paul does that masterfully. This morning, what I want us to focus more upon is the content of Paul's message. Last week, we looked at Paul's approach and the way he engaged with them. This morning, I want us to dig in in more depth to the content of Paul's message. And it seems to me that Paul really has one main point overarchingly in his message. And his one main point in this sermon in Acts 17 is there is one true God, and you may know him. There is one true God, and you may know him. And then he unfolds in more detail what is true about this one true God. And so we're going to do that same thing this morning, but before we start to reflect in more detail what we know about this one true God and how we may know him, I want us just to think a little bit about this concept of knowing God, period. Francis Schaeffer said, God is there and he is not silent. Do you believe that? Do you believe that there is a God and do you believe that he can be known? Some of you, that's a struggle. There's a barrier of belief for you to even believe and embrace that reality. And I respect that and honor you in your searching and your seeking, no matter where you are in the process. Others of you would ultimately conclude, yes, I do believe there is a God. I do believe I can know Him, and in fact, I do know Him. But chances are, if you're like me, oftentimes we know more about Him than we really know Him. You see, there's this concept of knowing in the Hebrew. The Hebrew word for to know is yada. 
which is not mere intellectual knowledge, but it's experiential knowledge. It's encased within a covenantal relationship. It's something that is intimate. And so the question is, do you know God intimately? Are you known by Him experientially? Distinguishing, once again, between simply knowing about Him and really knowing Him. Some of you would know that I'm fairly obsessed with uh, the culinary scene, uh, kind of on all facets, food and drink, et cetera, experiences, restaurants, and this fascination and obsess- obsession drives me to regularly watching documentaries on food and drink, et cetera. And one of my favorite documentary series on Netflix is Chef's Table. Some of you have seen Chef's Table. Uh, just for time's sake, I can't go into all the details on what I want to. About that, I'll just simply say it's a very well done Uh, documentary series that focuses on particular chefs, as in the best chefs throughout the world and their restaurants, etc. Season one, I'm sorry, season two, episode one, focuses on a chef out of Chicago named Grant Aches. And there's much that I could say about Grant Aches, and there's a lot that I want to, so I'll just have to say, this is your entry from me into the life of Grant Aches with more to follow. In the Chef's Table episode where they focus on Grant Aches and his world-renowned restaurant in Chicago, Alinea, they talk about different things that he cooks. And he does a particular style of cooking called molecular gastronomy, which is, you can just Google that. Um, but one of the things that the, all these documentaries do this, they will show you these amazing artistic pictures of this food that people are doing. And so, of course, in this particular one with Elenia and Grant Aches, there are some amazing pictures, and he does some fantastic things. There's one particular item that they show in this documentary that is considered by many food critics as one of the best bites in the world. It's called a black truffle explosion. One writer in the Elenia cookbook says, when you put it in your mouth, it's as if there was a water balloon fight going on in your mouth with black truffle oil. It looks like a ravioli. And in fact, he created it when he was working with Thomas Keller at the French Laundry in California. Then he comes to Chicago and he's on an audition for a restaurant called Trio in Evanston, Illinois. And when he sits down with the owner, that's the dish that he made for the owner and he got hired on the spot. It's the one dish that never left that restaurant. It's the dish that he brought to Alinea And it's a dish that is shown in chef's table, this black truffle explosion. I used to travel to Chicago a decent amount with my previous job. And Grant Aches has a side project called the Aviary that is not Alinea, but it's a side project of Alinea. And at the Aviary, which is primarily a craft cocktail bar, they also serve some samplings of food from Alinea. Alinea, by the way, is a restaurant that costs about $300 a person. You buy a ticket that does not include drinks, and you don't pay when you pay ahead of time. And that's how it works. I've not been to Alinea. I've been to the aviary, and I know all of what I just told you about the black truffle explosion. As I'm at the aviary, I look at the menu knowing that they have some small bites on the menu. And before that, I knew all about the black truffle explosion. I just told you about it. That night, in Chicago, I ordered a black truffle explosion. And at that moment, I went from knowing about 
that dish to knowing (laughs) that dish. And it was amazing. And in a very real way, that story captures the biblical idea of knowing. It's not knowing about. It's knowing. And Paul, in Acts 17, wants these people and all people, including us, to know God. He's got a burden for us. Not simply to know about, but to know God. We established Paul's context in more depth last week, so I won't do it here again today, but I'll simply say this. Paul is working under the assumption that everybody worships something. We are all worshipers, either intentionally or unintentionally. You don't have to be a Christian to be a worshiper. Everybody is a worshiper. There's a street in New York, four letters, W-A-L-L. That is a cathedral of worship every day of the year, even when it's closed. We all worship something. I can even remember upon Barack Obama's inauguration speech, upon his initial election from 2009, at one point in the speech he spoke of a patchwork heritage in America. He said a nation of Christians, Muslims, Jews, and Hindus, and non-believers. Interestingly enough, I have no comment. That's fine. I have nothing about his speech or him with regard to what he's saying that. What I want to talk about is a response that an atheist had to what I think was genuine intent on President Obama's behalf to be inclusive in his speech. I, I commend him for that. It's very interesting at the end when he said, and non-believers, that an atheist writing for the Calgary Herald named Kevin Brooker said this, as an atheist, I suppose I should be grateful that he mentioned this, but I consider the term non-believer to be something of a slur since it subtly reinforces the notion that we don't believe in anything. Now, this is an atheist talking here other than hedonistic impulses. In fact, many atheists or secular humanists are no less committed to bettering the human condition than the devout are. We just don't get all preachy about it. Except when he says that, he's being preachy about it, but that's another. Even if you say, I don't believe in anything, that's a belief. And Paul is working under the assumption that we all worship something. And what Paul is putting before them and putting before us is, you were made to worship this God. What do we know about this God? We know this God is a creator. We know this God is a sustainer. We know this God is a ruler. We know this God is a father. And we know this God is a judge. Let's move through these quickly. Paul, of course, begins here with creation. Verse 24 tells us, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men. And so essentially what he's saying is, look, you worship these gods like literal physical idols that were made by the hands of men. You worship them. I think on some level he's trying to appeal. I mean, these people are philosophical, they're logical, they're cognitive. I think at some point he's reasoning with them in a logical way. Hey, is it really worth worshiping a physical item that was created by the hands of men? 
Can I offer to you another God, like the one true God, who made those hands of men that made the things that you worship? He's the ultimate creator, and he has generally revealed that to us in his creation. My family and I had the privilege just this past fall break, a month ago, of going to Utah uh, to, for the week, uh, a fall break. And we hit it at a really interesting time, like a lot of places, at least in the West at that point in fall break, unlike in the East, it was way colder than average, which was a little bit problematic with some things that we had scheduled to do. But the beauty of that was, as we were headed up to the Park City Deer Valley area, which sits, you know, between eight and 9,000 feet, is the aspens were peak. Peak yellow, which is, yellow is not justice uh, as far as to describe the color of the aspens when they're in peak with a backdrop of snow. So you've got this juxtaposition of the beauty of the snow in aspens and other red maples, etc., in peak against the snow. And it was without question one of these moments. This doesn't happen by chance. And then we drove south to Moab and entered Arches National Park. And we look at these natural arches, and you can't help but to exclaim, Oh my God, how beautiful is the world that God created. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing, nothing that is hidden from its heat, Psalm 19. Or maybe uh, more contemporary uh, poetry, Gerard Manley Hopkins in his infamous poem, God's Grandeur. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil. Or if you read the latter half of Job, chapter 38 and following, when Job is needing a reckoning personally because he's doubting that God knows what he's doing. He's doubting that God's in control. He's doubting God's goodness and he's doubting God's power. And where does God go to help assure Job of his goodness and his power, he goes to creation. And he asked Job with some level of sarcasm, which kind of scares me. Um, I don't really want God being sarcastic with me, uh, but apparently that's what Job needed. He says, were you there when I formed the heavens? Surely you know. You know all about this, right, Job? Do you know why the waves stop where they stop? Because I said stop. That's why they stop where they stop. And then he does this amazing treatise on the beauty and the power that comes through creation. And I think it's humbling and helpful for Job. And Paul starts there that this one true God is the creator God. But Paul also challenges them that they, instead of worshiping the creator, worship the creation. It's what A.W. Tozer calls the suicidal exchange of the creation for the creator. 
It's what the psalmist reflects upon in Psalm 115 when he says, the idols, they have eyes, but they can't see, ears, but they can't hear, mouths, but they cannot speak because they're created. They're not the creator. And those who make them will be like them. That's a challenge. And Paul knows this. Paul sees their idolatry, and it's not simply that they are worshiping these idols, but these people in Athens are becoming like these idols. Just like you and I become like the things that we worship. We worship things like money and power and reputation and approval. We even worship more ambiguous things like control. And when we worship these things, we become like these things. We bow down to them. They have this promise and this lure of freedom. Hey, just do this. Take this pill, literally or figuratively. Watch this. Drink this. Base your life upon this. It will give you freedom. It will give you relief. It will numb you. It will escape. It's harmless. Those who make them will be like them. And that's the context that Paul speaks to God being a creator. But God, he also says that God is a sustainer. Verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. I want to reflect again on another passage of Scripture because I can only assume that as Paul is stating these key points before the Athenians This day, he has other scriptures in mind. What other scriptures he had in mind? I don't know, but maybe Psalm 50. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine, God says. If I were hungry, I like this, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. God's a sustainer. Not only is he creator... He's a sustainer. I think about this a lot with regard to leadership. And think about this, whether it be in the leadership of your home or the leadership of a business, and you read this in different writings, articles, etc. But people oftentimes will parse out these different categories of people. Are you more of a you know, big picture person, vision, kind of get the ball started? And I feel like that's kind of where I tend to throw. I love the whiteboard, you know, just ideas, vision, etc. But getting whatever's on the whiteboard like to the sidewalk is where I struggle personally, as a leader and as a person. Some of you would relate with that. Others of you would be like, no, 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 I'm totally the executor. Like, I don't like the whiteboard. I don't like doing that. But once we, it gets going, I can make that thing move. And it's almost as if it's this either or. You're either the big picture or you're the detail person. And what we see here in the scripture is God is wonderfully both. He's big picture. He's vision. He can... He can you know, wow you with a dry erase board and a marker. But also, he can execute that which he cast vision for perfectly because he sustains it. And this is unique in their context because people tended to think about gods as deistic, that they are removed from all things. In fact, this was the prevailing notion of the Epicureans who Paul's talking to in Acts 17 from Athens. They saw God as one who was distant So God is not only a creator, but God is also a sustainer. But then we see, thirdly, that God 
is a ruler. Verse 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries for their dwelling place. So God creates, God sustains, and then God rules that which he sustains. So he's an amazing manager as well. He's got great inherent power within him. Once again, to reference another place in Scripture, how about Isaiah 40? See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and He rules with a mighty arm. See, His reward is with Him, and His recompense accompanies Him. He tends His flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in His arms. He carries them close to His heart. He gently leads those that have young. God is a ruler, and how does God rule? And this would be good for all of us to pay attention to at this point, what is a biblical picture of ruling and reigning, whether it be ruling and reigning as an employer, ruling and reigning in other vocational or professional aspects of your life, or ruling and reigning in your home, ruling and reigning as a parent? I think we tend to think either or, once again. It's either strong arm or no arm. And what Isaiah 40 says is, no, it's, it's both armed. This is how God leads. With one hand or arm, he rules with might. And you almost imagine this like clenched fist. But what does the text tell us he's doing with the other arm? He's gathering his people like lambs to his bosom. So it's this amazing picture of strength and tenderness. And that's how God rules. And that's nothing that an idol can come close to. To be able to rule with strength and with tenderness. But that moves us along that God is not only creator, sustainer, and ruler. God is actually a father. And this is where it gets deeply intimate. And in a lot of ways is really connected to where we started. This is not simply knowing about God, but it's knowing God as a father. And I get, and we don't have time to get into it. Even this picture and this image of God as a father creates a boundary relationally and emotionally for many of us with regard to our earthly experiences with fathers. But in many ways, hopefully we can find hope even in what the psalmist says when the psalmist tells us that he's a father to the fatherless. And Paul puts before this picture of God as father here when he says, yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of our own poets have said, for we are indeed... His offspring. It's important for us to know and to see God intimately as a father. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, says this, You sum up the whole New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as the revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. Get this. In the same way you sum up the whole New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge how well you understand Christianity, find out how much you make of the thought of being God's child and having God as your father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls your worship and prayers and your whole outlook on life, it means you don't understand Christianity very well at all. If the predominant thought that we have is not about God the fact that he is our holy created father, J.I. Packer, and I would trust him more than me, said we don't understand Christianity very well at all. 
unless, it's, unless this is the primary way that we think about God. But then Paul concludes and leaves us with, so there is one true God who's made himself known, who calls us to know him. He's made himself known as a creator. He's made himself known as a sustainer, a ruler, a father. And then Paul ends with this rub. He says, you know what else about God? He's a judge. Let's unpack this a little bit to close. The text tells us, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, let me say this with regard to Christianity and other religions. All religions, all ideological systems to one degree or another have some theology or concept of reckoning. No matter what it is, no matter how loose it is, no matter how rigid it is, all belief systems have some notion of reckoning or judgment. Number one. Number two, the Bible does not shy away from this reality. Number three, this is hard. This is a point of tension and can be perplexing and confusing. I mentioned last week, I'm going to mention it Again, this week, Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York, who's regularly, you know, uh, engaged in the fabric of the culture, wrote or was a part of an article that a uh, regular writer for the New York Times named Nicholas Kristof wrote in 2016, and the article was entitled, Am I a Christian, comma, Pastor Tim Keller, question mark. So Nicholas Kristof is in an interview with Tim Keller, asking Tim Keller if he, Nicholas Kristof, the New York Times writer, is a Christian. And so he goes through this litany of different questions. And Keller, like I say, with like Paul in Acts 17 mastery, answers the questions, at least like I think most of us would like to answer the questions that he's asked in this setting. But here's one particular question with regard to judgment, and I think you'll find this helpful. The New York Times writer Nicholas Kristof says, what I admire most about Christianity is the amazing good work it inspires people to do around the world. But I am troubled by the evangelical notion that people, to go, that people go to heaven only if they have a direct relationship with Jesus. Doesn't that imply that billions of people, Buddhists, Jews, Muslims, Hindus, are consigned to hell because they grew up in non-Christian families around the world? I mean, is Gandhi in hell? How'd you like to answer that question for the New York Times? <laughs> Keller responds like this. The Bible makes categorical statements that you can't be saved except through faith in Jesus. Now, in some ways, just let's pause for a minute. That's the first thing he says. The Bible makes categorical statements that you can't be saved except through faith in Jesus. I'm very sympathetic to your concerns, however, because this seems so exclusive and unfair. There are many views on this issue, so my thoughts on this cannot be considered the Christian response, Keller says, but I would like to make this the Christian response. But here they are. You imply that really good people, for example, Gandhi, should also be saved, not just Christians. The problem is that Christians don't believe anyone can be saved by being good. If you don't come to God through faith in what Christ has done, you would be approaching on the basis of your own goodness. This would ironically actually be more exclusive and unfair 
Since so often those we tend to think of as, quote, bad, the abusers, the haters, the reckless, the selfless, selfish, have themselves often had abusive and brutal backgrounds. Christians believe that it is those who admit their weakness and need for a Savior who get salvation. If access to God was through the grace of Jesus, then anyone can receive eternal life instantly. This is why born-again Christianity will always give hope and spread among the wretched of the earth. So in conclusion, to Paul's sermon and to mine, what's the response? The response to Paul's were some mocked him. I'm open to that every time I stand up here and speak publicly. You've got to be open to mocking. They particularly mocked him for believing in the resurrection, though 2,000 years later no body has ever been produced. Conversation for another day. They mocked him. Some were like, hmm, sounds interesting. I want to hear more about that. And then thirdly, did you catch this? And some, like probably the least out of the three different responses, believed. Like a few people believed this to be true. My question is, what's your response? What's your response to what's been put before us as the one true God that you can know and be known by? Because you see, Paul gives two clear points of application in this sermon. The first one is, seek Him. Seek God while He is near. Seek Him through community. And by the way, this has application to Christians and non-Christians. Because you see, Christians, just because you ultimately believe, doesn't mean that you stop seeking God or that He stops seeking you. Nor does it mean that you only repent once. All of life is repentance. But if you're a non-Christian here today and you're looking for salvation then definitely seek God. Seek God through community. Seek God through Scripture. Seek God through prayer. Seek God through general revelation. God will meet you. He will reveal yourself to Him. In fact, if you have a desire to seek Him, you know what Scripture teaches us? He's already seeking you. But then also... Paul calls them and us to repent. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. There will be a day of reckoning. Paul doesn't shy away from that. Tim Keller doesn't shy away from it. I'd be a fool to shy away from it. There's a call to repentance, and repentance is simply turning from the false gods that we worship in our life and turning to the real God. And what I want you to know this morning is Paul communicates this with a sense of urgency. C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters tells about a conversation between the devil and three different demons, and he talks about how can we wreak havoc in the world? What can we tell, what lies can we tell these people about God. The first devil says, I've got an idea. Let's tell them that there's no heaven. The devil responds to that imp, as C.S. Lewis calls him, a little demon. The devil responds and says, no, that's not going to work. People aren't going to believe there's no heaven. Just look around. Look at all the glory and the beauty. They're never going to believe that there is no heaven. That's not going to work. Then the second devil says, I got an idea. Let's tell them that there's no hell. The devil says, "Mm, 
That won't really work either. I mean, it's kind of the other side of the coin of the heaven. I mean, the Scriptures speak about it all the time, and everybody seemingly knows there is some coming judgment. I don't think that's going to work either. That's not going to help us establish our plan to wreck the world. We can't tell them that there's no heaven, nor can we tell them that there's no hell. And then there was a third demon that tells the devil, I got an idea. Let's tell everybody there's no hurry. And the devil said, that'll work. Well, Paul says, there is a hurry to seek him and to repent while he is at hand. Let me pray for us.